The shooting of Trayvon Martin has grabbed national headlines. Trayvon Martin is, of course, the unarmed teen who was shot and killed by a neighborhood watch captain last month in Florida. Florida. Florida.
Well, we thought we'd start off the new year with some really good news. The question is so pertinent. What's going on? I think a lot of people are asking that question. What's going on in our world? What's been going on? What's going to take place in the future? We hear so much talk about cliffs and calendars and crises. It makes one wonder what awaits us in the year 2013. What are we going to face? How are you going to face it? How's your family going to face it? How are you going to deal with it? How should we deal with it? I think, generally speaking, as I've been listening to people talk and listening to the media and reading, you know, the various pundits, 2012 was a tough year. The expectation is 2013 is not going to be much easier. And there are a lot of conversations going on about how much longer our world, our global community, can continue to live the way we're living and deal with the things that that are approaching us so quickly, so fast. Is the world going to end? Well, the fact is, and God's made it very clear, that the world as we know it someday is going to end. But only God knows exactly when. And he didn't tell the Mayans. That's pretty obvious by now, right? In fact, uh, Jesus, when he was speaking about the end times, said something that's quite remarkable found over in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. He said, However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. But here's the good news. The Father has given us plenty of evidence in his word to know that his plan is in motion. He has spoken through the prophets. He's spoken through the apostles. And most importantly, he has spoken through our Lord Jesus Christ and given us evidences to help us know when that time is nearing. And so for the next four Weekends, we're going to be taking a look at one of those evidences that's been laid out for us in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at just a couple of chapters from a guy by the name of Ezekiel. And as we look at those chapters together, we're going to actually see something that I think may be on the verge of being unveiled in our own time as well. Now, before we go there, let me just say this, that when it comes to prophecy, we don't know everything. And sometimes we have to learn to agree to disagree. You're a smart congregation. Both campuses here at 950 guys are all very smart. And some of you have devoted a lot of your time to studying prophecy. And I'm probably going to say some things that that may be a little different than what you've heard. And we're just going to both agree to disagree on certain things Perhaps you'll come to realize that I am right and you are wrong. But, uh, no, seriously, I think there's some things we're just not going to know for sure until they happen. And that's why I think it's so important, on the one hand, to have the Bible in our hands, and on the other, really be on top of what's taking place in our world. Because we're going to be using the lens of Scripture to try to interpret and understand some of the things that are taking place in our day. 
So I thought it'd be important for us to get started by learning a little bit about Ezekiel. And I thought, I wonder what Ezekiel looked like. And so I came up with this little picture of uh, Ezekiel that you'll see on the board there. Uh, Kind of a, uh, uh, I'm going to guess, a Renaissance view of the guy. Honestly, this is not what he looked like, all right? But he was a person. We're going to sometimes refer to him as Zeke. And by the way, you got to bring your notebook, your pen, your Crayolas to the series. We're going to be doing a lot of drawing and diagramming and things like that, okay? And I'm going to try to use technology, okay? And I know at 95th, sometimes you guys are going to see the board instead of seeing me, but you'll hear my voice, and honestly, you don't need to see me anyway, all right? At least that's what I've been told. Anyway, uh, moving back into the passage, he was called when he was about 30 years of age. All right? So a young man, like his contemporary Daniel as well, he ministered uh, during the time, this is when he started his ministry, in 597 B.C. Now, Ezekiel was deported from Jerusalem. He was taken from Jerusalem and exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar in his second invasion of Jerusalem. The first invasion is when he took Daniel and a whole bunch of others to Babylon. The second time came around and he grabbed Ezekiel and some others. And Ezekiel's ministry was to the Jews who were all transported and exiled over into Babylon. And he basically has two phases of his 22 years of ministry. The first phase of his ministry, phase one was all about calling the people to, what's that? Repent, all right? To turn from their sinful ways and to turn back to God and to honor God and to obey God and get right with God. You know, as I think about what's going on in our culture right now and the increase of wickedness and sinfulness that's taking place, I just keep hoping and praying that as people are watching what's taking place, that they are going to repent and turn back to God. Don't you hope that? I'm hoping the church, the church of Jesus Christ, will repent and get serious with God in these days as well. He had a second phase in his ministry. And the second phase of his ministry was about consoling the people. You say, well, why is he consoling the people? Because something tragic has happened. Something terrible has taken place. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar went back for the third time to Jerusalem. And this time, when he went back, he totally, because they weren't behaving like he expected them to, he totally devastated the city and crushed the temple built by Solomon. Something that no Jew would have ever conceived of happening Because God was resident there in the temple. And the false prophets would tell the king and would tell the people, as long as we have the temple, as long as we have God, Yahweh with us, bigger and better than all the other gods, we're safe, we're good. But true prophets like Jeremiah would speak out to the people and say, oh, don't you listen to those guys. God is going to judge you if you don't repent and turn back to him. But the king of the people looked around and they had a lot of prosperity. 
And kind of like our politicians, they just kick the can a little further down the road. Oh, that cliff's not there. We can avoid that cliff. Kind of like, you know, we just heard our recent, uh, uh, we just uh, averted the cliff. Aren't you glad? I mean, we just, we just, our politicians just saved us from the cliff. But you know what they did? They just kind of moved it out a little further. So we have further down the fall. All right, the cliff is still there. That's what was going on in Jeremiah's day. Repent, repent, judgment's coming, the cliff is coming. Repent, repent. Oh, we don't have to, we'll ignore it. We'll kick the can further down the road. In 586, boom, the cliff came. Nebuchadnezzar came in and just devastated them and the people were just blown away because, you see, when a pagan king would conquer another nation, the thing he would do is he would go into the temple of that country and he would take their god or gods and then take them back to his temple and install them in front of his gods to say that my God, our gods, are bigger and better and more powerful than your gods. Well, when he went into the temple to get Yahweh, Yahweh wasn't there because God said, you will not fashion me after any image. You can't put me on a shelf. So he took the treasures out of the temple and he hauled them away to Babylon. The Jewish people knew that and they saw that. And for them, there was a sense of, oh my goodness, we've been forsaken. We've been We've been lost. Our, our, our God's been beaten, so to speak. And Ezekiel prophesies to them, and he says, look, you've been disobedient. God kept his word. He's punished you. He's allowed, you know, his glory's left the temple. The temple is just a building. But God is going to keep a faithful remnant. And someday, God is going to bring you all back together again And he's going to make you a mighty nation. And he's going to fight your enemies for you. And that's what brings us then to Ezekiel chapter 37 through 39. And we're going to look particularly at chapter 38 and 39. Because I think what Ezekiel said to them applies to a lot of what we're seeing happening today. So are you ready to dig in? Wow, that sounded weak. Let me hear both campuses. You ready to dig in? Well, as they say down in Texas, hold your horses, all right? And speaking of Texas, uh, I got a chance to go down there and see my two grandkids. I don't know how they ended up on the chalkboard, but uh, uh, Catalina and Lucas, and they're, they're just smiling at you saying, hold your horses, all right? Because here's what we have to do. Okay, We have to frame what happens in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 in the larger context of what God has been doing in the world. So we're going to gather, draw out kind of a a timeline, and I want you to join me with this. And if you've been with me in some of our other prophecy series, like in Daniel, Revelation, and by the way, you can go online and listen to those or go to our resource center and purchase those DVDs. Uh, and catch up if you want. Some of this is going to look familiar to you. Uh, some of it's going to be a great reminder. But I, w- I want us to see what we're going to be looking at in the broader uh, context. So uh, grab your, your notepad, your iPad, or whatever it is you're going to use right now. And uh, we're, going to, um, we're going to go ahead and kind of draw this out. So what I want you to do is, is draw a straight line, all right? And... Uh, I want you to just simply make a a very initial mark and just put C. Now, C stands for creation. That's going to be our our beginning point. Before creation, we we have eternity past, right? And then at some point in time, God created the worlds, the universe, everything that's in it. And he created Adam and 
Eve, our very first parents. And for a couple of chapters, and I don't know how much time that represents, everything was good because God said to Adam and Eve, if you just listen to me, obey me, and trust me, you'll be blessed. They were fully God-conscious. They weren't self-conscious. Then Satan shows up in the garden. He tempts them to disobey God by taking the fruit from the tree that belonged to God. And so listening to what God said, they took that. All right? And then the second mark we have is then the fall of Adam and Eve. And that's found, I'll put G3, that's found in Genesis chapter 3 tragic story. The whole human race goes down the hill at that point. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God were their children and we all had their nature in us which is a sinful nature. And you know we're all related to one another because we all are sinners. If you're a sinner, would you raise your hand at both campuses? Somebody's not raising their hand next to you. They're either an alien from another planet or they're in total denial. All right? We're all sinners. Now, if you're a believer, you're sinners saved by grace. Amen? Amen. Now, going back to our story, God didn't give up on the human race, however. And after several chapters, we meet a guy by the name of Abraham. So you put Abraham, just put Abe up there if you want. All right? And that story starts in Genesis chapter 12. You can put that there, okay? So now we got Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you. This pagan living in what we think of today as Ur the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq. He says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Between you and your wife, Sarah, you're going to have a child. And, and I'm going to bless all the other nations through you. And those who bless you, I'll bless. And those who curse you, I'll curse. And all I want you to do, Abraham, is obey me. And Abraham did really well until his wife suggested to him. No commentary on this, all right? His wife, Sarah, who's old and beyond childbearing, who didn't really believe God could do that with her, suggested to him that, she, that he take her handmaid, Hagar, and that they have a baby. And so he takes Hagar, and, and they have Ishmael. And it's like Abraham says to God, okay, God, you know, we did our part. Here's Ishmael. Now bless him and all my descendants. And God says to Abraham, I'm not going to do that because that's the child of your disobedience. I said I would only bless the child of your obedience and faith and trust in me. And if you want to know why there's so much trouble in the Middle East, why there's so much pain in the Middle East, just go right back to that story. Sounds simplistic, but that's the root of it all. Now, does that mean that God hates the Arabs? Absolutely not. God loves them as much as he loves you and he loves me. And Jesus died for them as much as he died for this Dutchman. But understand this. God chose Abraham and specifically the seed through his wife Sarah to form a nation that we know of as the Jews, as Israel, to bless the other nations. And God was not going to deviate from that plan. And so then Abraham finally realized how faithful God is. Sarah gets pregnant. They have a son. His name is Isaac. And the family line starts and if you follow the story through the Old Testament, you're going to see that they are just like your family and my family, imperfect. How many of you have an imperfect family? Let me see you raise your hands, both campuses, all right? If you're sitting by a member of your family, they didn't raise their hand, they're the problem. Anyway, <laughs> all right, they had imperfections, they had issues all the way through. Until finally they end up in slavery, remember that, in Egypt? And God sends them a deliverer by Moses. And one of the most important things that God gives to Moses is what we know of as the law. 
right? He gives them the law to live by and obey. And yet the people still keep breaking the law. They make sacrifices, but they just, they follow the other nations. They disobey Satan ever since Genesis chapter 3. Satan's been trying to destroy God's promise. He's been trying to defeat God's people. He's been trying to keep God from rescuing, redeeming humanity in any way that he can. So he's always, always hitting on God's people, trying to deceive them through idolatry and through all kinds of perversion and sin and disobedience. And finally, finally, it gets so bad that Israel has a civil war and they split up in two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. And both kingdoms, especially the northern kingdom, become so rebellious that God finally has to discipline them. And so then we have the whole incident when God has to deal with, first of all, the northern kingdom of Israel in 722. He sends the Assyrians to defeat them. Notice how God oftentimes uses other nations, other powers to discipline his people. And after he's done dealing with northern, is, uh, the northern kingdoms, the southern kingdom is a little better. They do a little better job, but eventually they get so bad that, as we've already seen in 586 B.C., God sends in Nebuchadnezzar and deals with them and exports most of them over to Babylon. And that's when Ezekiel is prophesying and Ezekiel is ministering. It is a low time. It is a difficult time for the people of God. It looks like everything is going downhill. It seems so hopeless. This is where we have the story of Esther and Mordecai. Remember that? Remember how Haman tries to destroy all of the Jews? This is where we have Antiochus Epiphanes who tries to destroy the Jews. In modern days, you think about Adolf Hitler, so on and so forth. There's always been an attack on them. But God kept the remnant faithful to himself. And finally, one day, it says in the book of Galatians, if you want to turn there, chapter 4 and verse 4, God intervenes and something truly miraculous that we just celebrated takes place. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says... But when the right time came, that is God's timing, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Isn't that cool? To be adopted into God's family. My youngest son is adopted into our family. And I love my youngest son serving our, our country right now over in the Middle East. But that relationship, you know, of adopting him in. Some of you have been adopted. Somebody wanted you. God wanted us. He adopted us through his son. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Isn't that awesome? That's a sermon right there. That you and I can call God daddy. That's what that Hebrew is, a very affectionate term. You'll hear it in modern day Hebrew. You'll hear kids call their daddy Abba. And God says, I invite you through my son to call me Abba. All you have to do is put your faith and trust in him. So we go back here, and what happens is God sends Jesus, right? And he's born, he lives, he dies, he's resurrected, and he ascends back to the Father. And he says, anybody who puts their faith in me can call me, you know, can call my father their father. And will follow me. And born out of this whole experience is the church. The book of Acts. 
And God calls his church, not the building, us, the believers, the followers, to tell everybody about this great story that we just looked at here. This beautiful story of what God has done for humanity. Go tell this amazing story. Now, here's the question. Does the church replace Israel? Some theologians and some teachers say yes. I totally disagree. God hasn't forgotten about Israel. God hasn't displaced Israel. God made a promise to Israel. God has kept the remnant. God is going to do something with them. And according to Ezekiel chapter 37, you know the valley of the dry bones? You probably know the song. How many of you have heard that song? Them bones, them bones. Should we sing that? I don't think so. All right. But it's a picture. Read it later on. It's a picture of God, in essence, calling all the people back to himself again. Reforming them. Forging them into a nation. And something significant happened in 1948. What happened in 1948? Israel became a what? A nation once again. That's a really bad David star, but it's there, all right? Israel becomes a nation. Ezekiel 37, I agree with a lot of Bible scholars, Ezekiel 37 is then fulfilled. It begins to take place. So is Jeremiah chapter 23 now taking place since 1948. Go back and read Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 37. Between now and next weekend, you'll see what I mean. Now, I want to keep moving on our timeline because I want you to see now what happens in the future. Right? So we're going to kind of like do a continuation from here. Now we're going to go back. We're going to say the church is here. All right? And we're also going to say that uh, Israel is here. Okay? We're waiting for something to happen. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. Amen? Yeah. You sound really excited. <laughs> excited about Christ returning? Yeah. Are you watching? Are you ready? Are you hoping? Well, the Bible tells us, according to Matthew chapter 24, Daniel chapter 9, Revelation 6 through about 18 or so, we hear about this period known as the tribulation, a seven-year period. It is divided up into two portions, three and a half, three and a half. During the first three and a half years, we have the beginning of sorrows. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 24, there will be earthquakes and famines and pestilence. It'll be like birth pangs. And you know what happens to a woman when she's pregnant and she's getting ready to deliver her baby? What happens to the birth pangs? They get closer and more intense and closer and more intense and closer and more intense until what happens? The baby is born, right? Painful, exciting, birth. Well, do you feel like the globe is in contractions right now? You know, closer more violent, more difficult, more intense. And everybody, even people who aren't followers of Jesus, everybody senses something's about to take place. Something's about to be birthed. Something's about to happen. Well, I tell you what's about to happen. Christ is coming soon. And so we have this intensification, and suddenly there's going to appear somebody known as the Antichrist that the Bible talks about. The Antichrist is going to be a false Christ who masquerades as though they were Christ. They were, they are the answer to all the political, economic, and uh, moral situations in the world. 
And they're, and they're going to they're make a great promise to bring peace to everyone and satisfy the world's longings. And I have been doing a lot of reading lately about um, World War II and especially about the church during the time of Adolf Hitler. And I've been absolutely amazed as I've read that. I feel like I'm reading what is going to happen in the future. Although Hitler is, is a, a joke compared to what the Antichrist will be. Hitler was so obviously a nut. He was so obviously insane. Yet look at the people raising their hands and following him. Even Christians, even pastors of churches in Germany that swore their allegiance to Hitler. Why? Because the people were beat down economically. They were beat down politically from World War I. They wanted some, self of a, some sense of esteem. They wanted some sense of hope. And he offered all of that to them. And they sold their souls to him. I came across a picture that to me was just was, was eerie to watch. And I thought, man, this could be a picture of, of of what happens someday in, in our own world, our own nation, when you've got Adolf Hitler shaking hands with a, with a religious leader there. And, and that's what's going to happen in the future. The Antichrist is going to have not just his political strongmen, he's also going to have his religious strongmen with him, that false prophet as well. We talked about that in our series in the book of Revelation. So that day is coming. And we're told that after that day comes, all right, then there is going to be the great tribulation. Now, the great tribulation is when the Antichrist then turns his back. You know, Hitler turned his back. He made promises and broke those promises. The Antichrist will will turn his back, break promises. I believe he'll begin to persecute Christians, and I believe he's going to persecute Israel, my understanding of the Scripture. It's going to get so intense that something's going to take place. We're going to have the rapture of believers that takes place here. I believe the rapture happens after the Antichrist. Some people put the rapture here at the very beginning. I hope they're right, okay? But as I read Scripture, I don't see it. You say, where do you get that from? Go listen to Daniel. Go listen to the Revelation series, all right? So the rapture takes place. We're with the Lord. This is when God pours his wrath out on the Antichrist and his forces. And then we have the second coming of Christ. Our Lord, our Lord returns Whoops, for the second coming. Okay. Now, Israel is kept during this time, protected by God, a faithful remnant here on earth. Again, you can go back to the series to check it out. And then we have the future ongoing. Now, big picture, don't expect you to grasp all of that, but I need you to see kind of the big picture to answer the question, well then, where, where is the prophecy we're looking at, Ezekiel 38 and 39, take place? I believe, with other scholars as well, that it's going to take place sometime between now, today, all right, we'll call this now, all right, and before the coming of the rapture before the Lord takes us out of this world. So I believe that what we're looking at right now in the next couple weekends, we might be seeing the beginning of its fulfillment because what we're going to look at is all about how God gathers Israel together and how the nations of the world are going to surround her and come at her to destroy her. And when it looks like there's absolutely no hope for her, God is going to divinely intervene and defeat those nations. 
And I believe there will be a huge spiritual movement on earth. People are going to recognize it was God's supernatural intervention. And there will be many who turn to Christ. And believe it or not, it will also set up the ministry and the reign of the Antichrist. Now, where will you be in that? Where will the church be in that? Where will America be in that? You want to know the answer? I mean, we can go to a different series. We can talk about worry for the next three weeks. You guys want to know the answer? Then you got to come back next weekend. And bring your Bibles. Now you got the big picture because we're going to unpack chapter 38 and we're going to unpack chapter 39. But I want you to walk away with some hope and some encouragement this weekend. I want you to remember this. That even though sometimes it appears that evil has the upper hand, like it did back in those days, like it seems to right now. I want you to understand God is in control of the present and the future. Just like he was in control of the past. Nothing causes God to worry, to fret, to get uptight, to get upset. God's plan is in motion. And you need to understand that. Secondly, Even though the world, even though our country, even though people keep kicking the can down the road, thinking that we can just get away with sin and get away with wickedness and and we don't need God and we don't need his word, just because because we come up with theories and teach evolution and other ideas that God doesn't exist and God is far removed, doesn't mean there isn't a cliff that's coming. Doesn't mean judgment won't come. Judgment will come. And when it comes... It's going to come quickly. Thirdly, you and I, if we're believers, ought to be living in this world with one hand filled with the pages of Scripture, reading and understanding what God's Word says from Genesis to Revelation, and in the other hand, the headlines of what's taking place in this world and not allowing the headlines, headlines to alarm us and create fear and anxiety in our lives, but instead use the Scripture and lay them over the headlines and see, ah, God is at work. And as we see what's taking place right now in the Middle East with Israel, Syria, Russia, Iran, what's taking place right there, I'm telling you what, when we start unpacking Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, Next weekend, you're just going to sit there and go, oh, my goodness. God told Ezekiel way back then exactly what we see happening today. It's going to be exciting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you in the middle of chaos and things that just don't make sense to us, that when we, when we look to you and we look to your word, we get insight, we get direction, we get hope, we gain confidence. And Father, even though we may not understand all the detail of these things, God, if we can put our minds toward trying to understand the Mayan calendar, if we can read horoscopes, if we can invest, Lord, in having our palms read and all the nonsense this world tries to use to figure out the future, God, if if people could do that, then, Father, we we can look at your word and we can gain insight, we can gain understanding, and it's the truth. So, God, please help us to, help us to just... Fall in love this year with your word, with your son, with the truth, and to allow it to guide our lives. 
Not to be filled with anxiety, but filled with hope and excitement and anticipation. Jesus is coming again. And so, Lord, because of that, we have no fear. We have no fret. Honestly, God, we shouldn't have any worry. Because you're in control. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together.